Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they, shall, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus said to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. As you're finding your seats, getting comfortable, hopefully getting your Bibles out. I want to let you know up front that this will be a, a two-part sermon. Uh, it was going to be one part, and then um, I had too much to say. So for your sake and the kids and those who are watching our kids downstairs' sake, we broke it up into two pieces. Somehow I've still managed to have more words than I should this morning, but I wish I'll get through it. <clears throat> Part one this week, uh, this is not the title of the sermon, but part one, we're going to walk through Jesus' temptation. So we'll walk through this passage, uh, we'll think about it as it relates to the garden, each one, we'll think about each one as it relates to Israel in the wilderness, and we'll think about how it relates to us. So there'll be kind of the three pieces that we'll try to hit in each one of the temptations here. Then next week... We're going to discuss desires, temptations, sin, and repentance, kind of how those things fit together and how we think about that, particularly in the life of a believer. My title today, though, is Untethered Desires, Part 1, Untethered Desires, Part 1. So let's think about temptation here for a moment. I'll set it up this way, temptation is something we all struggle with. This is a, a human reality, and it was no different for Jesus being a human. Should I eat the next Oreo ball at the Super Bowl party? Might have been a temptation I faced. Should I watch the Super Bowl halftime? Should I look a second time at the picture I just scrolled past on social media? Should I let my feelings rule this moment? Or go untethered. Maybe you don't struggle with any of those items, 
But I imagine with just a little bit of effort, you could list a few temptations that you face frequently. Hopefully you do. Hopefully you have that measure of self-awareness and self-assessment. But what is temptation? How does it happen? When does it happen? Why does it happen? When does temptation turn into sin? When do I need to repent? What about my desires as they relate to temptation? I'm willing to bet that most of us do not have a carefully defined doctrine of temptation, especially as it relates to sin, and when do I sin, and when should I repent, and so on. I would argue, and I would consider, your elders would consider, that the idea of desires and temptations and sin and how they relate together to be fundamental to the Christian life. This is not something just for theologians to understand. When does, when does my desire turn into sin, and when does it give into temptation, and when do I need to repent, and repent for what, and how do those things fit together? This is a fundamental matter for the Christian life. It's something that we must carefully think through. I want to give you quickly three key aspects of temptation before we start walking through the passage. Three key aspects. I'm going to roll right through these. First one is this. It has to involve something that's pleasing. Temptation always involves something that is pleasing, something that is desireful. If it isn't something that you would desire, then how could you be tempted with it? That's part of the point of James, which we'll get to later, when he says, basically, that untethered desires lead to sin. So something is pleasing to the eyes, and a desire untethered will make plans to snag it, to get it, to go after it. If you remember, if you recall, the fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eyes of Eve, and Adam. For example, I'm not usually tempted to overeat with sweets. I can usually turn down a cookie, unless it's one of Hope's uh, chocolate chip salty cookies. Amen. However, an additional bite of salty buttery steak is something that's hard for me to turn down. My wife is quite the opposite. It's something that is always pleasing. Two, it's, I, I'm almost willing to say always, but it's at least most of the time something that is good that's been twisted. Something that's good that's been twisted. I think when you get into, and this is a, a side thought here, when you get into desires, desires always are ordered. So a lot of times we only think at the surface, so I'm desiring this thing that's evil, well, usually there's a desire underneath of that that's ruling it that's probably rooted in a good desire, but it's getting twisted in the process. You'll see those examples here, particularly with Christ. These desires that are good that get twisted. Number three, 
If temptation is fled, if temptation is fled, you are not guilty of a sin. That'll be more next week. If temptation is fled, if you're delivered, you're not guilty of, quote, a sin, or if you could put that in italics, a sin. The London Baptist Confession uh, 6.5 says this, though your nature during this life, both its very self and its motions, first motions, are truly and properly sin. We'll flesh that out more next week. So you need to keep these three things in mind as, as we walk. It's always pleasing. It's usually, if not always, something that's good that's been twisted. And yet if temptation is fled, you're not guilty of, quote, a sin, end quote. This week, if I was to give part one uh, a title, it would be this. It would be Jesus, the ultimate temptation victor. The ultimate temptation victor. That is Jesus. He survives the arena. Let's walk through Jesus' temptation. I want to give you a couple more introductory thoughts before we get into verses 1 through 4. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted as we were, but without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted as we are, something desireful. Yet his desires were tethered to the word of God. Always. Uh, Let me give you a note here quickly on untethered desires. The title of part one and part two. We all have desires. There's no way to get away from those. In fact, Psalm 37, 4 says, if we delight in God, that he gives us the desires of our hearts. It doesn't mean he gives us all of our desires, but desires that are tethered to delight in God and his ways, that he would give us those desires that are in line with delighting in him. It's the desires that are not tethered to the word of God that lead to sin, that conceive and give birth to sin, as James tells us. Now that's important because here's my fear when it comes to this passage with Jesus and the temptations. My fear is that most of you are going to reduce this passage in Matthew down to when I'm tempted, I just need to throw a verse down. Like, smack that verse down in the situation. You know, like, boom, James 1.17, every, every good gift is from above. Or I'm tempted, boom, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Or boom, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Name your temptation, name your verse, and there we have it, deliverance from the temptation, only to be right back at it five minutes later. Listen, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not faced with the temptation and just, boom, lays down his trump card and 
moves on to the next thing. Yes, Jesus is quoting scripture, certainly. Yes, you and I desperately need to know scriptures and be able to quote them. But the scriptures aren't some magic potion that you can just speak and temptation goes poof. Jesus's, instead, Jesus' very desires were anchored to God's word. They were tied and double-knotted and triple-knotted to God's word. They were tethered to every word that God had said. So much so, and here's the, dis- the distinction between our just throwing a verse down in the midst of temptation and what Jesus is doing. He was so tethered, his desires, his mind, his being was so tethered to what God had said that he could see through the temptation and understand what was really going on. So let's walk through Jesus' temptations here beginning with the first one. Jesus's, or Jesus desired sustenance through food, but he fled to God, the only sustainer. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice quickly, the past Last week, the Spirit had descended upon Jesus in his baptism. Now the Spirit is leading him into the wilderness. He led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is no happenstance. This is on point. This is on purpose. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Maybe it might be the understatement of the century, but he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, probably sourdough. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's the temptation. The temptation ultimately this moment would be to find one's sustenance in something other than God. To find one's sustenance in something other than God. What do I mean by sustenance? One's continuance. Maybe if that's not helpful, one's sustainment. One's satisfaction. I don't really like that word, although it would it, it might be helpful as long as you take satisfaction, it's not just an emotional thing. Oh, I'm just deeply satisfied and happy with that. Now, this is, this is one's continuance, one's ability to live on, to find one's sustenance in something other than God. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve? Hopefully, you do. Adam and Eve desired sustenance in their belly, their physical beings. They desired sustenance. They desired food to continue life. It says that the fruit was pleasing to their eyes. Jesus certainly desired to be satisfied at this moment, to have his hunger satisfied. That's why Matthew says he was hungry. What, is, what does that mean? It means he wants food. 
Jesus desires food at this moment. In fact, we can deduce that Jesus would certainly have longed for food even more than Adam and Eve longed for the fruit of the tree. Jesus was fasting. Adam and Eve were not fasting. At least we're not told they were, so we assume they were not. Jesus is fasting. Jesus had went 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't think he had 250 pounds of excess McDonald's fat to burn off. Experts disagree on how long one can go without food, but most believe it's between 30 and 60 days. Jesus, understand, would have been on the verge of physically dying. Most people die within 8 to 21 days, statistically, without food. And Jesus is 40 days in. So when Matthew says Jesus was hungry, I think we can easily read there, Jesus was about to die. I think there's... there's there's many reasons, certainly, but this being one of them, for why at the end the angels come and minister to Jesus. We don't know if they come and finally give him food or whatever. We don't know. We're not told at that moment. But we know that his strength, we know that his endurance is being tested in many ways here. He was fasting. And so it's in that context, it's in that context that Satan says, well, why don't you eat from this tree? And Jesus responds, ultimate sustenance comes only from God. Ultimate continuance and sustainment of my life comes only from God. And how does Jesus gather this and how does Jesus say this? Well, what he simply does is he ascribes back to God what God has already said about himself. Namely, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man needs bread. Jesus is not denying that reality here. God was created man to live on food, surely. But Jesus is saying, but I know I can see through the circumstance that, the, that only the word of God can ultimately sustain me. What was he saying? He's saying, maybe in other words, I trust God with my life. More than I trust my own hands, my own body, my own mouth, my own stomach, or even my ability to fill my stomach. Listen, this moment wasn't about simple perseverance in hunger. It was a choice between, do I trust what God has said, or do I trust something else? Anything else. Name it. Do I trust what God has said, or do I trust something else? In the gardeness, sorry, in the gardeness, I just put two words together. In the garden wilderness... The something else was fruit. 
do I trust something else or God? In the wilderness, it was bread. Adam and Eve chose to trust something else. Jesus chose to trust God. Now, as we work through each of these three examples, all three times that Jesus is tempted, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. And he specifically quotes from Deuteronomy where Moses is reviewing Israel's sin in the wilderness. Again, this is no happenstance. So he's quoting Moses reviewing the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We see the parallel, 40 days and 40 nights, 40 years. Jesus quotes from that time. So Matthew wants us to see, and Jesus wants us to see, that he is is reenacting the wilderness journey. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he humbled you, this is God, and God humbled you, Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know what man, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Jesus is quoting from. Moses, if you go back and read the context, Moses is saying, it is the Lord, O Israel, that cares for you. So here, God lets them hunger, lets them experience the pain of hunger, but then he sustains them. Here, he sustains them through food. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew what God had done with Israel. Jesus saw, I mean, Jesus believed what God had said. And so, Jesus here is starving. He desires food. Satan says, well, you can have it right now. Jesus knew what Moses had said, and so Jesus could see through the temptation. He could see that what he was being tempted with was not just having a bite to eat, but was whether or not he believed God was the one who could sustain him and not the work of his own hands. Jesus could look beyond the hunger. He could see past it. He could see through it. That's what I mean when I say that Jesus did more than just throw a verse down at Satan saying, you know, take that, Satan. Jesus could see through the circumstances. And he could say, my life is ultimately in God's hands. Sure, I could turn that bread or that stone into bread, but I trust him. I trust him. So I would ask you this question, in what ways do you look for sustenance and you're tempted to get it yourself instead of trusting God? Where, in what ways do you look for sustenance and you're tempted to get it yourself instead of trusting God? I didn't write this one down, but it just came to my head, so... Must be the spirit, hopefully. Uh, in, in a world that seems to be in this uh, great upheaval and quickly degrading, 
Some of you uh, uh, I might label as preppers. Preppers. Uh, you're preparing for you know the apocalypse tomorrow, right? Which could could ha- could could or could not. It's really easy to entrust tomorrow to your own doings than to trust it to the Lord. Now listen, that does not mean you don't prepare for tomorrow. The issue is, is what are you ultimately trusting in? So you can prepare for tomorrow while still faithfully trusting it all to the Lord. So don't, don't make those, um, uh, I can't think of the word. This is why I, I script my notes. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. There we go. Preparing for tomorrow and trusting the Lord are not mutually exclusive. They can go together, but they must go together for God's people. Children, how often do you not trust your parents with their decisions? Children, listen. How often do you not trust your parents with their decisions, with their exercise of God's authority in your life? Instead, you trust something else, or you try to make a way for you to get what you want Apart from, even though mom and dad have told you no. Or maybe you just throw a fit until they give it to you. Or husbands, do you not trust the Lord can sustain you, even sexually, and so you look for pleasure elsewhere? Or wives, how often do you not trust God's work through your husband as he leads your family? So you go and make plans outside of his direction. Just a few of the many, many, many applications we could think of. When it comes to it, we trust the Lord and his sustenance and his sustaining work versus anything else. Jesus certainly desires sustenance through food. But he fled to God, the only sustainer. Number two, Jesus desired to know God's will, but he fled to faith. Jesus desired to know God's will, but he fled to faith. Let's look at verses five through seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's the temptation. The temptation for Jesus at this moment and if you could put this in italics, the temptation is to italics know God's will. The temptation is to know God's will versus living by faith. To know God's will versus living by faith. So the temptation to know God's will at this moment, what I mean by that is to force God to act. To force God, if one could, to prove himself. 
so that then Jesus could see it and know it. So when I say know, what I mean is like now it's in front of his face. So the Bible talks about how we who are followers of Christ will one day see Jesus face to face. We will then know him and faith will give way to sight. So faith will be no more because you will now see it by your eyes. You will now know him by sight. So faith will be no more. That's the temptation here, that Jesus would know that God would care for him, that God would not let him die, versus living by faith that he would care for him. So here's the deal. Jesus, you say you believe God will care for you. You believe that by faith. But wouldn't it be good to know it with your eyes? Jesus, wouldn't it be good to just know right now for sure? that God will keep his word. Won't you just throw yourself from here? And certainly, God will prove it to you. Uh, certainly, certainly Jesus desired to know with, with a visceral experience that God would care for him. As if 40 days has not been enough yet. Just saying but the temptation was to know it instead of believe it by faith. Now remember Adam and Eve. Let's go back to the garden. The food for the belly was certainly pleasing. But so was it pleasing to know good and evil for themselves instead of living by faith in what God had defined as good and evil. You see it? Instead of having to trust God is good in the boundaries and the rules he has set for us, Adam and Eve say, we shall know it for ourselves. So Adam and Eve decide to seize it for themselves. We shall know it instead of trusting the Lord with it. So Jesus, again, is certainly physically fading at this moment, Surely God will care for me. Satan says, why don't you throw yourself down and make God prove it to you? But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What did Jesus do once again? He ascribes back to God in the face of Satan what God has already said about himself. And Jesus' desires once again are demonstrated here to be tethered to God's word. Now we have to dig into Deuteronomy to see a little bit of a better picture here of what Jesus is referring to. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 6, Deuteronomy, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now in the context, again, go, go read it this week. <coughs> in the context, Israel is commanded to fear God, to do what is right. To, to trust him with the boundaries that he has set. Because why? Because when they get into the land that they're about to possess, there are going to be many evil options, many evil gods for them to choose to follow. But at this point, God had already proved himself to Israel. 
He had already proven. That's, that's why Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, that's where he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. But then just four verses later, he says this, when your son asks you in time to come, quote, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. That's why he's saying, you, don't put your God to the test. Live by faith. He's already proven himself. He's already been faithful. It's time for you to live by faith. So I would ask the question, us now, post the life and death of Christ, where has God proved it to us? Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's already proven himself. Now what do you think this was, this particular point, I think all of this was prep for what I'm about to say, but I think this particular temptation was prep for the cross. I think this particular temptation, this particular point here, was preparation for the cross. Follow me. Jesus is in the garden. I'm not going to go read these verses except for a couple here in a second. But Jesus is in the garden. Surely Jesus desired to not go to the cross. To not endure the Father's wrath. God, if there is any way, any other way, please deliver me. What happens immediately next in the progression of Jesus' thoughts? Look at verse, uh, well, you're not, you don't have to turn there, but Luke 22, verse 42 through 43. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, meaning the cup of God's wrath. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. What's he say? Not my will, but yours. Jesus was asking, please let me know right now that you care for me. Then he immediately says, not my will, but yours. Jesus surely wanted to italics no God's will at this moment, but instead he chose to live by faith. As he's being sustained in the garden, and he could throw himself down, and God would surely keep him alive. I believe 100%, if he would have done that, God would have kept him alive. Here in the garden, God, I, I, don't, I don't want to endure your wrath. But I know you'll keep me alive. 
What, was Je- what did Jesus know at this moment? He knew that his father would rescue him from the grave. He was already told this in the Old Testament. He knew this. He trusted this. He lived it by faith. He didn't have to know in visceral experience the deliverance of the Father in this moment in the garden. He didn't have to have that. Why? Because he trusted in what God had said. That he would be resurrected, that he would ascend to the throne, that he would be exalted That God would ultimately rescue him from the grave. And so both in the garden and at this point in the temptation, Jesus fled the temptation. He's delivered from the temptation. He refused in this moment to demand that God prove himself to him. And he says, I'll live by faith. I'm not going to test God. I'm going to live by faith. So my question for us, in like fashion to the last one, how often do you demand of God, prove yourself to me? How often do you demand of God, prove yourself to me? Ultimately, we we do that because we don't want to live by faith. Why would one be tempted to know instead of living by faith? Because knowing gives us a sense of control. It makes us feel like we're in control, like we're now, quote, in the know. We like to be in the know. Why? Because we feel powerful. We feel in control. So how, do you, how often do you demand of God, prove yourself to me? Or in what ways do you do that to God? I'll give you maybe a couple examples. Some of us cloak this kind of nonsense in doctrinal searching. Well, if God would just prove to me this particular doctrine so that I could understand it, then I will know God. I will know that he's right and good. I see this particularly with the doctrine of election. If I could just know it, meaning if I could just understand it fully and completely, then I could trust God. How about wives? I think wives sometimes can have a tendency to question their husbands on everything. Listen, I get it. Some of your husbands are not very good leaders. I get it. Some of them make stupid decisions. I try to get on them enough, right? Right now it's your turn. But sometimes a wife can act more like a superior judge wanting to be in control than a following partner and friend. All in the name of give me the why. I think the temptation there is to live by, because you want to live by the feeling of control rather than by faith. 
Someone said this, what's happening in this moment with Jesus is that valid desire for assurance, that's what I mean by to, to know, valid desire for assurance degenerates into the vice of wanting divine knowledge. The temptation here is to know in order to feel in control. How often do you demand of God, prove yourself to me? Jesus desired to know God's will, but he fled to faith. Number three, Jesus desired the nations, but he fled to the righteous route, the righteous way, if you will, of acquiring the nations. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I mean, could you imagine that kind of sight? And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and what we read that was similar in the Luke passage of the garden, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, certainly, Jesus desired the kingdoms. I mean, he knows this is why he's on earth. He desires to rescue the world from their sin and the wrath that was impending upon them. Certainly he desired them. He knew they were his anyways. Jesus also knew at this moment, as we read in Ephesians, that would be written after Jesus' life, that Satan was the prince of, of power of the air. That, Jesus, that Satan had great authority. Jesus knew that Satan was not yet defeated from our time perspective. Don't forget that. This, this would be very visceral for Christ. The temptation, though, here was to gain a good thing in a cheap way. To gain a good thing in a cheap way. To gain a good thing in a cheap way. The wrong way. Doing it the cheap way, at this point for Christ, would have been saying that something else or someone else, is worthy of worship instead of God. You see, see, see the picture? If you will worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this earth. If you just worship me, anytime we do something away other than what God has prescribed, we're saying that the one who prescribed it is more worthy of worship than God. So the temptation here was to gain a good thing in a cheap way. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So as Israel enters the land, 
Okay, this, is, this is the conduct, this is what Jesus has in his head as he's quoting these verses, being very familiar with Deuteronomy. As Israel enters the land, they're going to be tempted with accomplishing much of life the cheap way. Very practically, very practically from this, this time. If we worship that God of sex, I'll get a son, I'll get an heir. If we worship the God of the weather, we'll get some rain for my crops. You see it? The cheap way. Not God's way. And what are they saying? Well, I trust the weather with this God over the God. The God. For us, some examples. If I worship the God of experience, maybe my kids will be good people. If I worship the God of sports, my kids will be good people. If I worship the God of money, I'll have a strong home. If I worship the God of time, I could be super productive. If I worship the God of feminine virtues, we can all just get along and be peaceful. Listen, those desires to Having peace and being productive and a strong home and good kids, those are, those are good things. The problem is the temptation to get them the cheap way. And in doing so, you say that the person who wrote the cheap way is worthy of worship, not the God who wrote the expensive way. Listen, if you want your kids to be good people, then teach them the ways of the Lord. Like, Dad, very practically, from your lips to their ears. Not just their elders to their ears, but from your lips. Mom, from your lips to their ears. If you want a strong home, teach your home the ways of the Lord. I'd remind you, husbands, that you should be a husband, that your elders could instruct your wife to go home and ask you what the Bible says. If you want to be productive, which is a good thing, worship the ways of the Lord, work six days, rest one, and so on. Any other way other than God's way is the cheap way. Most oftentimes, God's way is also the hard way. Just experientially here, I would argue, Why? Because usually God's way is upstream from the world's way. And if you've ever tried swimming against the current of the lazy river, you know that it's a little harder than just floating downstream with everyone else. Parents, if you don't remember that, just ask your kids. Last time they were in a lazy river, I'm sure they understand. Listen, when Jesus says his yoke is light, he does not mean that you get to take a vacation and cruise to heaven. What he means is that the burden of your sin he has taken. But when the world is flowing in the opposite direction of which he's going, it will be hard and it will probably be expensive. Now, I would also say here as a quick caveat before moving on, don't mistake miserable for hard, okay? 
I think we as Christians think, well, if I choose the miserable way, it must be the hard way, and therefore it's God's way. That's just foolish. Listen, God's way should be filled with joy and laughter. Why? Because you can see through the difficulty. You can see through the hard and trust him. All right. Every time, kind of recapping here, every time Jesus is faced with a temptation, what we see is that his desires are tethered deeply and thoroughly to the word of God, such that he flees the temptation every time. He's delivered from the temptation every time. Matthew shows us here that Jesus is the second Adam, right, that Paul talks about in Romans. He's the second Adam. Where Adam messes up, Jesus is our righteousness. He does it right. Matthew shows us here that Jesus is the perfect Israel. Where Israel messes up in the wilderness, Jesus is our righteousness. He does it right. If you're following the thread here in Matthew, two weeks ago it was repent and be baptized that we saw from John the Baptist. Last week we saw that Jesus is our very repentance itself. This week we see that Jesus is our righteousness. That in the face of temptation, he endures righteously. Now I would pose the question, how do we think about our own desires and temptation, sin, and repentance. So here's where I want to land the plane for today. James 1, 14 through 15. James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Okay? So it's something that's desirable. But at this point in James, in the verse, he's tempted. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So we're going to hang out here for the next couple moments and next week is but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That piece there. So when are we tempted? We're tempted when desires come into play. I desire that. When do we sin? When desire conceives and gives birth. So think of it like this. When that desire is given a second thought. Well, I could do this to get that. Or when that desire comes in action. When that action is in motion, whether it's a physical action or a mental action, that desire untethered to God's word gets pregnant, it gets pregnant, it conceives. And it gives birth. 
its baby is called sin. And when it does, you and I must repent all the way, thoroughly. However, if you are delivered in that moment from that temptation, you and I should thank the Lord. We should thank the Lord that even though there are traces of the old man, which is thoroughly and truly sin, but you and I are not guilty of a sin. For Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 12 through 13, listen to Jesus' words, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, sins need forgiveness. Temptation needs God's deliverance. Let me pray for us. Father, as we wrestle through this passage, even leaving some things lingering, Father, I pray that that even in this moment, as there might be things we want to know, things we want to feel in control of, Maybe even the tension that we might have, even this moment, I pray that we would not be tempted to put you to the test, or that you would deliver us from that temptation, I should say, and that we would trust you. Father, when times come that, that we are tempted to make a way for ourselves, trusting in our own hands and trusting in the people around us, that we would know that man does not live by bread alone, but only by the very words and every word that has come from your mouth. And Father, when we are tempted to do it the cheap way and ascribe worth to anything else other than you, that we would turn our heads, that you would deliver us from that temptation, that we would worship you and you alone. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.